0: Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Today we are joined by Lee Waters, MS. He's been a member of the Senedd for Llanethli since 2016 and the Deputy Minister for Economy and Transport since 2018. Hello, Lee. Thanks Hi, for joining right. us. Glad to be here. We're going to start with one of the biggest bits of uh, news in Welsh politics in the last few weeks, which is uh, Wales has nationalised the railways. Would you be able to explain briefly sort of how and why that happened and what the Welsh Government's plans are with the railways from this point on?
1: Well, Matt, put it simply, there was a crisis uh, and the crisis forced us to make a choice. Uh, you know, We've previously had an ambition to have a not-for-profit railway, but the, the legislative framework didn't allow us to do that. Um, so instead, we developed a partnership with Keolius and Amy to have a uh, wheels and border franchise that was managed in a, in a different way, which involved shared risk. And what Corona virus has done is blown up the business model of all public transport because it relies partly on subsidy, partly on fare box, as we call it. But with passengers not travelling on trains and buses, that business model just collapsed, and that's happened right across the UK. Now, in England, you've had private companies handing the franchise back to the DFT, and the DFT have decided to contract them to manage it for them. With a, with a profit share. We didn't want to do that in Wales. We didn't think we should continue to pay private profit when the private sector weren't taking any of the risk. So we seized on the opportunity, frankly, to say, well, this is what we really wanted in the first place. We have a crisis. We're having to put a huge amount of taxpayers' money into this, uh, something like £160 million this year. And so... We decided to take it back into public control using transport for Wales as an, an arm's length body to run, which of course is an option they don't have in England
0: so the plan is to keep it nationalized then there's no plans to maybe franchise it back out at a later date?
1: well, the law as it currently stands doesn't allow us to permanently nationalize it otherwise we'd have done it in the first place, but in a crisis, you were able to go to what's called an operator of last resort, which is what we've done and so long as those conditions are in place, which is going to be for years to come, I would imagine, then we're able to keep the current arrangements going. I think, you know, we're hoping that in the meantime there'll be a change of government at Westminster and we'll be able to legislate to allow that to be the norm. Or maybe you'll be able to negotiate with the current government. We'll have to see how that goes. But we don't think the circumstances which created the crisis are likely to go away anytime soon.
0: Do you, do you envisage a situation where you would make the request of Westminster to have those powers to keep it nationalised?
1: Well, I guess if they're obdurate and you know, they, they don't want to do it, I guess I guess so. You know, we, we certainly want to have those powers in, in any event. We want uh, further rail devolution and we want the money to go with it. And that's always a dilemma when you ask for more powers from Westminster. Is it's careful what you wish for sometimes because you'll have the powers, but you won't have the money. And we know that Welsh Railways have been chronically underinvested over, over different governments over many years. We don't get our share, either of population or equivalent to the amount of track that we have. So there, there does need to be a recasting of the way the railways are managed in any event.
0: So you talk about the crisis, and one of the major reasons that the, number, the sort of railway was taken into public hands in the first place was because passenger numbers are down. Does that mean that it's a poor investment?
1: Well, no, it's a, it's a public good and I think that's the, you know, the, how we need to reframe the debate around public transport. And, you know, sometimes you have to have these conversations within government with the Treasury. This is not an investment in the sense that you're going to get a return on it, just as the way you wouldn't say the NHS is an investment. It's something we provide as the mark of a civilised society. Uh, and we think the public transport has a very strong social justice argument. The you know, 25% of people in Wales don't have a car. We know from GFW surveys that 80% of bus users don't have an alternative to the bus. So if we did not provide this core public service, then you'd be significantly disenfranchising a large proportion and the poorest part of the population. And also from a climate change point of view, even though we don't anticipate numbers returning to old levels to public transport for some considerable time and we want as part of our climate change objectives to have a modal shift to get people out of cars and onto public transport and then if the service isn't there, if we were to say there's a crisis, we'll walk away from it, we'll let it wither on the vine, then that core service wouldn't be there when we needed to be there for the longer term.
0: You mentioned buses there, is there any plans to, to move them into state control anytime soon? Well the the bus model
1: is profoundly flawed and we had hoped to pass a bill in this Senate term uh, to have greater regulation of the bus industry but because of the pressure coronavirus has put on both Senate time and Welsh Government legal resource we've had to stall those plans but if we are returned Next May, or whoever forms the government, we're doing work now so that that government is able to take forward uh, regulatory reform for the buses because that's needed. In the meantime, again, the crisis has thrown up an opportunity. Bus companies are private companies, uh, you know, and they like to remind us they're private companies, even though half their money comes from the taxpayer. Now, left without intervention by the Welsh Government, almost all of them, have gone bust during coronavirus. We have stepped in to salvage them, to protect key routes, to make sure provision is there for key workers. But we've said that something will require something in return. It comes with a price tag, and the price tag is we want a greater control for the money we provide to in order to get integrated services in order to get the routes in the places we think they should be going not just where the commercial logic suggests they should go. Now there's a limit to what we can achieve through that which is why legislation is required but we can achieve more than we've been achieving and I think that's another upside in what is a grim affair.
0: What does the reduction in passenger number mean for the Welsh Government's transport strategy moving forward?
1: Well, in the short term, it means significant financial pressures, because between buses and rail this year, we've had to spend uh, £300 million effectively carrying fewer passengers. So there are huge strains on the budget because of that. There are significant question marks in the short and medium term of the level of consequentials we get from the UK government for public transport. So there is a real, there is a real challenge around the financing of of public transport, I guess, you know, there is a question mark for public transport all across the world, is when will people feel confident enough that coronavirus is in such a state that public transport is safe for them to travel on? Because in a sense, they will vote with their feet and that is an unknown.
0: So you talk about people voting with their feet. Obviously, we've got people, more people working from home. We've heard a little bit about Welsh Government plans for community working hubs. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? What sort of plans are Welsh Government putting in place to allow people to work more in their community or more at home?
1: So at the height of the pandemic, some 40% of people were staying away from work. The numbers were down. And, you know, Mark Drakeford was very clear on this. To be fair, we don't want to return to the situation where everybody was driving in at the same time to the office, causing congestion and stress. So we had an extended conversation in government about what the right level was, because... It's not straightforward. You know, working from home isn't for everyone. If you are the victim of domestic violence, being at home traps you in, uh, in that abusive relationship. Uh, not everybody lives in a place where it is going to be a nice environment to be in all the time. So it's not, as, it's not straightforward. So we settled on a figure of 30%, which we thought was both achievable and would make a significant difference. But that's about remote working and flexible working, rather than just home working. Uh, so you know, we want employers, and employers, to be fair, are ahead of us on this. They see this themselves. They see a chance to reduce their overheads from office space. So we want employers to be able to allow people to work flexibly, not to have to go into the office every day. I was from a personal point of view. If I was in a normal job, you know, I'd like to maybe work from at home two or three days a week, and then go into an office for, for the rest, to socialise. Because there's, there are clear downsides to being by yourself all, all the time. We also see it as an opportunity to try and uh, inject some energy into town centre spaces which are clearly we're struggling anyway and the pandemic has, uh, has worsened that. So if we could use some of the freed up space to hold co-working hubs, that is something we think could have double benefits. Now we're working through that because obviously we need to be careful that we do something which is sustainable. I think just a couple of years back, when Carmen Jones's government created Welsh language centres across Wales, a focus on buildings and capital spend without really understanding a user need, and very few of them remain, and a lot of money has been spent in the meantime. So we need to put something in place which is going to be sustainable, it doesn't displace market activity, because there may be a role for the private sector to act here in a way the government doesn't need to so I think you know we need to make sure we do this right but I think there are some shorter opportunities to f- to free up buildings for example you know TFW just opened a lovely new building in the middle of Ponte at the moment TFW staff aren't in there could we open up some desk space there so people who are living in that part of the valleys don't have to go into Cardiff everyone they can still have a nice environment so that's the sort of thing we're working through it's it's not straightforward
0: so obviously this is quite a, a possibly permanent displacement of, of the labour force. What steps are you putting in place to maximise that? And what does this displacement mean, do you think, for the foundational economy more broadly?
1: Uh, well, I think it's about you know, changing behaviour and patterns and habits. Uh, so I'm not sure I'd put it in quite the way you've put it. Uh, it's, it sounds a little more sinister uh, way, Sorry. <laughs> way I, I think it's an opportunity to, to reduce our commute and, and to, you know, to work in a more civilised way, is, is, I think is the way I, I, I would look at it.
0: What is the Welsh Government doing to ensure the di- digital infrastructure is there to allow this to happen? Obviously, there's lots of people who might be listening to this who would be a bit concerned about the prospect of working solely from home or solely from their community if, if they haven't got the sort of digital infrastructure that they may have in city centres, etc.
1: So digital is a really interesting area because, first of all, it's not devolved. Responsibility for telecommunications sits with Westminster. But Westminster have taken a laissez-faire attitude to this. They've said the market will determine what properties are connected and what are not connected. Now, we know in Wales, left of the market, only about 40 percent of properties would have super fast broadband. And the Welsh Government took a decision about 10 years ago to intervene in that, even though it wasn't devolved, to use money that should have been spent on devolved subjects. And shifted it to a non-devolved subject and as a result of that uh, has got connection levels up to 95 percent of premises super fast so that's a significant step forward clearly that leaves five percent who are still struggling and the market isn't interested and the uk government aren't interested in connecting them. Now, my view on this and the politics of this is, you know, why should we, even the UK government are all over the shop of the Devolved Settlement, why should we be doing this when, they, when this is their responsibility and they have the funding for it and we don't? Uh, you know, I get letters from Tory MPs all the time complaining that houses in their constituencies can't get broadband and what's the Welsh government going to do about it? Well, we've found ourselves a bit of a pickle there, I think, uh, in creating the expectations on us to act, when it shouldn't be on us to act. What really should happen is the UK government should treat broadband as a key piece of national infrastructure, just as the way we do in water, electric. We don't leave that just up to the market. Uh, and the parallel I make is with Royal Mail. It's a private company, uh, but as a condition of trading, it has to deliver letters to the, a, a farmyard 10, 10 miles away from any other property because it's a public service. Uh, and I think broadband should be the same. At the moment, Ofcom does not regard does not regard it as such, and that needs to change.
0: Do you think you'd ever be in a position where you would support the nationalisation of the broadband infrastructure?
1: Well, that's what you know, the last Labour manifesto effectively said, and you know it was it was ridiculed for it, and I, I think that just shows how the conception of the role of the market has changed since Thatcher. year i know this is so seem as somehow a cracker's pot idea whereas it is a norm in many countries around the world and as i say it's a norm for postal services and we accept that logically uh, and we need to change our thinking around broadband because i especially in the, in the modern era where all key public services are increasingly online, you know, it's a right you need to have access to it. And so I think we've just got to shift our thinking to see this as a core cool piece of infrastructure.
0: Obviously, COVID has had a huge hit to the economy. We're hearing a lot of people say that we need to build back better. I what hate- does that mean to you? You hate I, that.
1: Right? <laughs> it's, just, it's so cheesy, isn't it? Well... Uh, I think it's glib is the trouble. You know, I clearly agree with the, the sentiment, but I don't think it's going to be as simple as that because you know this is a one in 100 year public health crisis, but it's creating a one in 300 year economic crisis, and that you know with the attitude of this government in Westminster, you know is going to have a very long shadow because you know I think and David Melding has made this point. When you think at the end of the Second World War. That our debt ratio to GDP was 250%, and it wasn't until Gordon Brown was the Prime Minister that Britain paid off its war debt. You know, that's just how significant an amount of money we spent to fight the war as a crisis and to allow us to recover from it, uh, and how long it took to put us back on an even keel. And Covid is of a similar level of of severity and yet the UK government is not tackling it in the serious way it needs to and it you know it needs to be throwing everything at it in a sustained way for a long period and they're not they're conceding the minimum being forced constantly to u-turn you've seen this on the the furlough payments you know they started well on furlough and then they sort of lost their confidence, really, and orthodox conservative thinking started to reapply itself in a completely inappropriate context. Uh, So I think that's the first point I'd make, is that the attitude of us all to the level of intervention that's going to be required to come back from this uh, is completely misaligned at the moment. And without that, the ability to, quote, build back better is going to be severely constrained. Now, there are choices it throws up for us, just as I mentioned on uh, the rail intervention, uh, on buses and on home working, I think where we, in our modest way, as a Welsh Government to the powers that we have, have shown our values to, to make different choices in the way that the pandemic has forced us to do differently. And, and I think that remains open to us, but to really build back better in a fundamental way, I think requires a completely different approach to economic management and policy from at the UK macro level. That there's no hope of this government doing. So you know they can use the they can use the words, but they're they're very shallow unless they change shift their attitude. You know I think you know we've got multiple crises aligning here, and in a sense we can see COVID, we can see Brexit, which you know people have stopped talking about because uh, the left of and our heads kicked in and are scared to talk about it anymore. But it's about to it's about to reappear in a big way. But the crisis, you know, or well, the challenge, the change when is is going on. We're not we're not talking about it because we're not seeing it as visibly. Is around automation and, and and the fourth industrial revolution. You know that is just a significant change to the way we go about business that needs a response. And actually, both COVID and the fourth industrial revolution require an, uh, an investment and a focus on skills, uh, and digital skills in particular, to, to respond to those joint challenges.
0: A lot of people faced with, well, COVID and the fourth industrial revolution have pointed to things like UBI uh, as, a, as a possible route out of that. Is that something you would ever think to support?
1: i have still hesitating on that. Really, I've just—I uh, don't know what to think about it. Is the honest answer? I, I haven't made my mind up about it. I'm attracted to the idea, but you know, as ever, uh, the first response is to how let's do a pilot project about it. And I kind of think it's—I kind of think it's the sort of thing you either go for it big time or you don't bother, because uh, I think it's—it's it's a such a significant change in the role of the state and the way that. Uh, the role between the individual and the state, the relationship is treated, that you are, you need to do it with a full committal. Uh, and I don't really see any government around the world doing that. Uh, it does, I think, significantly challenge people's assumptions and prejudices about uh, welfare. Uh, and then, as you know, we just discussed, residual attitudes around the role of the state in terms of privatisation, I think there's a long way to go to get people to accept this um, this is a legitimate intervention. I suspect we'll probably get to it, but, I, but I, I think we'll get to it painfully rather than proactively. But I haven't personally thought it through enough or understood the consequence of it enough to be able to have a, to, to have a fully formed view on it is, is the honest answer.
0: We've seen Mark Drake could talk about it a bit though, haven't we? Would the Welsh Government have the power to do it at the moment?
1: Well, had there been a UK Labour government last December, you know, they would have been a pilot in Wales as part of that. And Mark Drakeford is certainly talking to the Labour leadership about that. So, again, I think we're attracted to the principle of it. Uh, it's an alluring idea, but we don't have the wherewithal ourselves, really, I don't think, other than in a marginal way. And I just don't know if that's the best way to do this.
0: One of the industries that's in the news at the minute that's struggling is steel. What 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 are the Welsh Government thinking is going to happen with, with the steel industry and what are your plans to sort of help that out? Would that be another area which you could ever envisage state ownership?
1: So I think this is really interesting. And, you know, we're 21 years into devolution. The role of Wales in the union is very much on topic at the moment. And I think, you know, one of the conversations we need to have is w- what is the role of the devolved government in the economy. Because, you know, I was involved in the 97 referendum, the 2011 referendum, and when you fight referendums, you inevitably talk up what can be achieved. And one of the things we did in 97 was talk about uh, putative Welsh assembly as being an economic powerhouse. When that really was never gonna happen, because the powers the Welsh government has for economic development are, you know, they're not insignificant but they are, sec- they are secondary to the UK government. Uh, you know, we effectively have, han- have inherited the grant giving powers of the Welsh office and the WDA into the Welsh government. So we have microeconomic levers, we don't have macroeconomic levers. And Wales is a part of the UK and the UK economy is largely undevolved. So business support skills are devolved but interest rates, inflation, large scale spending is not devolved. And so when it comes to things like steel, you know that is a strategic sector for the the whole of the UK, uh, and the UK government has a, has the lead role in making sure the UK economy can deal with strategic uh, economic shifts and threats. And I think that what we're seeing in the steel industry is, is a global shifting uh, of power uh, and supply. And what's happened in the last week in Tart with Tata, which is a long, it has been a, the latest development a long line of. Of developments, has been a you know a shift of global forces. You've had part of the European operation being sold to the Dutch after their proposed merger fell through, and there are a couple of possible outcomes here. And one, I mean, I'm not totally downbeat about it. There's certainly a threat, but it there could be a, a positive outcome for the UK from this. Because the Tata have have been responsible owners, they are sort of an ethical in the view that they have a conscience, they feel an obligation to the people in the areas that they have their plants, uh, and certainly have invested in the UK business in a way that was not a, has not been economic. <laughs> Uh, for a significant time. But they do require the UK government to step up and play its part. You know, in the 2016 crisis, the Welsh government put cash on the table. And I've spoken a lot to senior Tata management about this and said you know, the Welsh government saved the day. The UK government talked but delivered nothing in 2016. Now, we can't afford for that to happen again. We, we do not have uh, the resources in Wales to be able to step in and nationalise the steel industry. You know, Adam Price likes to talk radical on this, but you know, I think it's slightly cloud cuckoo land economics to sort of talk radical without knowing he has to deliver on it. But I do, th- you know, I do think there's an argument for the UK government taking a strategic slice in in Tata, and I think they have a responsibility to act on a range of things to enable this strategic sector to be sustained.
0: If the UK government don't act then, would you be in favor of a sort of Mondragon approach, a sort of cooperative led approach to the steel industry?
1: Well, I'm a big fan of the Mondragon approach wherever we can apply it. I think it's, you know, it's an excellent model. It's, you know, that's why I'm pursuing the foundational economy model uh, and the support for grounded firms. I think it's, it's a huge amount to recommend it. But you know, the Mondragon development is one that's happened over for 40 years in a way that you can't simply lift and shift uh, into our context. I wish we could. I think, you know, one of the bits that this f- forgets is that, you know, what does the workforce want out of this? You speak to the steel unions, they, they don't want to work as cooperative. It's easy to talk, you know, to have sexy talk. And, I, you know, I'm all for it. I, I, I can stand in the crowd and punch the air like the rest of them. But when it comes to sort of sitting down soberly and working out how the hell you do this stuff, I, I think there's a disconnect between the rhetoric and the reality. So we'll move on to something uh,
0: slightly different. Do you ever get annoyed at some of the UK media coverage of Welsh government decisions?
1: Well, I have very low expectations, so I don't I don't tend to get too annoyed. You know, I think the way the UK media works is the way that media across most of the world works. It's metrocentric. In most countries, the media outside the capital city and its environs complain that they're neglected, and they're certainly the same here. You know, I think you can layer onto that a kind of uh english arrogance which the you know you you look at the people who make up journalists they are largely the product of private schools and russell group universities and they have a slightly superior sense about them and i i was a house of commons lobby correspondent for three years when i worked at itv so you know i'm i mixed with these people so there's a general sniffiness that anything outside of their corridors of influence is is slightly you know beneath them so so you layer those two things together and you get a media that doesn't serve the country well
0: do you think this is a problem that's sort of been semi rectified of scrutiny of welsh gov during the pandemic
1: the you know i think definitely awareness of devolution has grown both within wales uh, and in london and i think uh, that has helped but And I think the problems go deeper than that. And I think there is a structural model about the way the business model of of modern media. And again, this is across the Western world. You know, the, the local roots of the industry have fallen away. And this is an example of digital disruption. We just talked about the fourth industrial revolution happening around us. Well, this is an absolutely perfect case study in how digitization has completely blown away the base layer of an industry but in this case it's an industry with a very strong public purpose and that really hasn't been replaced we don't ha- you know there's been an attempt through the bbc local democracy service to augment uh, a layer of uh, council reporting but magistrates quoting court-, court reporting other councils hasn't really been uh, replaced that general civic life stuff just isn't there so i just think of you know think of Kenaki when i got uh, involved in politics, there were two newspapers serving town the size of Llanelli. Uh now there's none. You know, there's a, the, the masthead of the Llanelli Star remains, it sells a tiny number of newspapers and Media Wheels in its uh, UK operation uses it on a, as a front on social media with minimal really local coverage to sort of try and reach bodies, but it's not, it's not local journalism anymore, uh, so I think that's you know that is that is at heart the problem and that's a UK-wide problem. Uh, so that's the newspaper industry. You know, the, I say the tabloids and the the broadsheets have haven't really taken the wheel seriously for forty years, and it's got worse. Uh, there was a little you know uplift when devolution first started, but it didn't last long. And then the broadcasters uh, again, I think, have improved a little over the last couple of decades, but, there, you know, I think we've seen a couple of examples during the pandemic where there's been some real shockers. I think what we're getting now is more, far more name-checking, so that the, the, the sub-editors make sure that the distinction between England and the rest is more clearly labelled. But what will tend to happen instead, they'll just say, in England, this announcement's been happening, without then curiously asking, oh, what about the rest of the UK? So I think there's a, you know, there's, there's a huge long way to go, culturally, for us to accept what a quasi-federal system looks like and the role the media has to make sure the electorate is informed. Uh, and the move towards clickbait uh, and analytics-led journalism, as they call it, works against that.
0: Do you think this, uh, this media environment leads to a democratic deficit? You, saw, you talk about clickbait yeah, and of sort of does. misinformation as well as a lack of local reporting.
1: Yes, of course it does. You know, who holds me to account in, in Llanelchy outside of elections? you know i'm not clear i'm really not clear because most people don't know what i'm doing i do my best to use social media to inform and engage but really how many times have i been made to feel uncomfortable about decisions i've made or really challenged or justified on them i can think of one example in in five in five years and and that wasn't because of the local media and that's just not right you know uh, people should be held to, to account. Uh, and there are things like podcasts and hyperlocal who step into some gaps, but it's very uneven. And it's, it's amateur. You know, it's, it's, it's not people trained and skilled and honed in, in doing this. And, and it's capable as well of misuse uh, and being taken over by people with agendas or just cranks. Uh, and that just doesn't serve democracy well.
0: Well, thank you for the invitation to uh, have a regular slot with you to scrutinise you. We'll we'll take you up on that. I definitely uh, had
1: you in in the crank. <laughs> <to be honest. laughs>
0: so, what can be done to build up this sort of indigenous Welsh media or this hyper local Welsh media? And what sort of steps do you, do you think government should take to do it? Or do you think it has to be sort of from the ground up?
1: So, I think there is a role for the state, uh, but I think it needs to be done at arm's length. So, I think you know the Welsh government took a step in this space. Under the One Wales government, in creating funding for a Welsh language news service that was won by Gulag 360 at arm's length through the Welsh Books Council, uh, I think there's a strong case for an English equivalent uh, providing uh, for the gaps there are. And particularly, I think, you know, around coverage of the Senate. When I started as a journalist in the Senate, there were three roomfuls of journalists. Uh, now, outside of BBC and ITV, there, there aren't any. And that used to include. Uh, you know uk uk outlets and pa and so on so I, I think i think there is a there's a role for government there's there's a there's a reluctance in government to go there uh and also there's a, there's a there's a financing issue but i you know i also think there's a role for trusts and foundations in this space as well which is something that really hasn't been they haven't stepped up to the to, to the mark on that and i think things will come around full circle in some way and even way as the digital disruption starts to settle, I think you will find you know people are always interested in what's going on in their patch. It's you know, it's being filled to some degree by social media, but you know, but there's that's no substitute for a skilled profession.
0: Do you think the arguments for the devolution of broadcasting are therefore much stronger than they have been in the past?
1: Well, again, I think they're superficial because I don't see what that solves. Part of the problem in broadcasting is about economics, it's not about regu- regulation per se, and devolution of broadcasting doesn't shift the economics at all. I think we do have a problem with, with inadequate regulation, and I met the chief executive of Ofcom a week or so to discuss this, you know, they were set up by a Labour government to have a light touch regulatory approach, and I think that's been a disaster. I think, you know, you can see in the way commercial radio operates in Wales, for example, where the stations, Swansea Sound, the most recent example, you know, have just disappeared and been replaced by a bland, generic uniform service, which just isn't good enough. And the regulators have sat there and watched that happen, and I think it's uh, to their discredit.
0: So moving on to something slightly slightly different. There's been quite a bit of concern recently that you mentioned earlier about Brexit and the end of the transition period. Firstly, the internal market bill. Uh, if you wouldn't mind giving us briefly your thoughts on the internal market bill, both in terms of sort of devolution aspect and the international damage it could do to our reputation?
1: Well I think it's a land grab and I think both the internal markets bill and the future of the cohesion funds, the structure and funds has been replaced, are classic colonial divide and rule tactics uh, by an English nationalist government frankly. So the internal market bill gives the Westminster the power to interfere in the the results of two referenda. We had a lot the Brexit lot about how important it was to respect the result of the referendum. Well we've had two uh, and it was clear in both of them that what the devolved powers were and where uh, different layers of responsibility lies and they're trying to overturn that by using uh, the return of structural funds to try and uh, interfere in that and then similarly with the future of uh, the objective One funding they quite clearly are going to and we'll see more details of this uh, in the Comprehensive Spending Review, they're going to be trying to uh, interfere uh, and get around the Welsh Government by dealing directly with councils. Uh, and again, some councils are going to fall for this agenda as a chance to get a little bit more money in the short term. Uh, but ultimately, this is an attempt to divide and rule.
0: One last sort of topic we want to talk about is the, the independence movement and the growth in independence. Yes, Cymru has seen an absolutely huge increase in its membership, in the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this is?
1: Um, well it's really interesting isn't it because over the last six years support for independence has doubled and support for abolishing the assembly has also grown from about 20% which stubbornly has li- lain since the first referendum to about 25% now. So in a sense both extremes to the debate are, are growing in support uh, and again that's not untypical of the times we have we are living through The culture wars are playing out and seeing the the, the polar opposites gaining support. And I think there's a danger that our little bit in the middle melts, really, as these two poles grow. Now, I I think this is, you know, I think you're going to see this in the context of the general rise of unreasonableness, you know, in terms of Brexit and the backlash from globalisation. Uh, following the 2008 global slump you know I think there's a very clear connection between all of these things the rise of nationalism the rise of uh, pointing fingers at people who don't look like us to blame uh, for the fall in living standards that has fallen from that the whole intergenerational tensions where you know the younger generations are you know getting stuffed frankly by the way that economic forces are playing out so I think these are global shifts uh, which are playing out in a way that we've seen before. You know, we've seen this happen uh, in the last century uh, and in, to a degree it's it's happening again. So I think that's the backdrop. And, you know, I don't think there's a simple analysis of this uh, in terms of the S-Cymru increase, other than, you know, the, the these are people who, and I, you know, I'm, I find the, the romanticism of it attractive. Uh, I'm... Proudly Welsh, you know, I've made my career in Wales, not in London, because I want to build a stronger Welsh nation. I'm a pragmatic unionist, not, a, not an emotional one. Uh, I think we are, to use the old phrase, better together genuinely. And uh, you know, if you think coming out of the EU is complex, well, coming out of the union with England is going to be even more complex. I think, you know, the, the alternative to uh, a union is both practically very difficult. I think culturally very challenging when you've got 30% of people living in Wales born outside of Wales. I think when you look at the border, uh, and lots of independent countries deal with border issues, when you look at how much our population lives along the border, how long the border is, how few higher earning taxpayers we have, and how the fact they live close to the border are fairly mobile. Uh, So I think there there are all sorts of practical reasons why independence would be difficult. Not impossible. Uh, I certainly don't think Wales should stay in the UK with a gun to its head, which has been an argument of unionists on the left for many years, you know, we're too poor to be independent I reject that, but I'd like us to be able to choose uh, to stay in the UK from a position of equality you know, I'd like us to, to deal with those economic inequalities and then say, well actually it is better to cooperate with our near neighbours, and I'd, I'd like a properly federal model, I've believed in federalism for as long as I've believed in devolution, I think it is a far a more stable and fairer system but I have to acknowledge that is a fairly arid argument really it doesn't have the emotional appeal that the independence movement has.
0: No definitely we've talked about that at length it, it ends up sort of being viewed as a sort of area for technocrats and anoraks I think Darwin yeah. Joan called us. Do, do, you think that, <laughs> <laughs> do you think that the growth in support for Yes Cymru is a, either kin to a growth in support for nationalism, or do you think people in Wales view the UK government as the nationalists of a different kind, and it's that that they're rejecting?
1: I think it's a mix of things. You know, I think there is a, there's an ethnic nationalism to it, for sure. There is, I think, uh, a lot of disillusioned Remain voters who feel pretty grim about the prospect of being outside of Europe, which had been a civilising influence too. I think there are people who are, you know, and I don't mean this in any dismissive way, in a protest politics sort of way, who are unhappy with a prospect of yet another conservative government. And the pros- and I've certainly had correspondence to this effect as a, as a member of the Senate. People, you know, just as the growth support for dev- dev- devolution, devolution in the 80s was as much of a rejection of Thatcher and Redwood as it was an embrace of anything more positive. There are people drawn to it as a way of escaping the, the horror of the political settlement. So I think all those things are, are present.
0: Do you think it automatically means there's going to be a higher applied Cymru vote next year? Or do you think it's more complicated than that?
1: I think it is more complicated than that, and certainly the polls aren't indicating that. And, you know, there's always been this... Very odd mix of Plaid Cymru voters who for vote Plaid Cymru but are opposed to independence. So you know, there's there's a there's a lot there's a lot going on there. What I do think, you know, I think there's a real challenge for the Labour Party to properly engage with this. Uh, and for too long, there are too many people in the party who have dismissed independence as about separatism, as if this kind of gets you off the hook from an intellectual engagement with the issues. You just call them separatists. And therefore, suddenly, you know, you're off the hook from, enga- from, en- from engaging with the, with the issues. And I just think that won't wash anymore. I think the, for me, the big, uh, and I wrote about this when I ran the IWA five, six years ago, uh, you know I think if Scotland were to leave, and I don't think there's anything inevitable about Scotland leaving at all, but if Scotland were to leave and we're outside of the EU, that's a different ballgame. Uh, I think you know the 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 union that people have romanticised then becomes hard to envisage when you when you're probably ending up with an England and Wales where Wales becomes an, a greater Birmingham in the view of some in London uh, where the prospect of a non-right wing government becomes harder and harder to achieve. You don't have the European influence to, to act as a counter to some of some of that. I think that presents a significant political challenge to people who believe the union is a good thing and to the Labour Party's casual dismissal of the whole argument, really. So I think we've got a lot of thinking to do to how do we respond were that situation to arise.
0: a lot in that answer that I want to sort of try and unpack a little bit. We'll start with the Labour aspect of it. The first question there is, what do you say to people in the Labour Party in Wales who are being drawn more and more to that argument? Is there a way that you can turn them back into sort of being engaging in in different aspects of the argument or do you think that those people are are now going to be independent supporters forever And, and secondly on that sort of what do you think Welsh Labour can learn from Scottish Labour and the mistakes that Scottish Labour made in losing so many of its supporters to the SNP and to the ES cause?
1: Well, I think we've already learned them, because we didn't make them in the, first, in the first case. But, you know, we certainly can't be complacent about that. I think, you know, to answer your first question, we need to go back to first principles. You know, why is it the Labour movement was, was created? It was created by, to help working people to gain a voice uh, and to help people who are in distress and who are being neglected by the system. And I think that remains, you know, I, I, I think a lot of sympathy with the founding argument that a working person in Llanelli has the same interests fundamentally as a working person in Liverpool uh, or in Glasgow. Uh, you know, so I think that first piece of analysis stands. So I think the, the concept of solidarity, which is what lots of the people you describe on the left who attracted DS Cymru found so appealing in European Union membership, also applies to UK membership and we shouldn't lose faith in that principle. I think there's a practical, as I said, I think there's a practical argument which is, you know, less alluring but equally uh, forceful uh, when it comes down to it. So I just think of my own experience during the pandemic when I was given responsibility for managing PPE supply. You know, if it had not been for an integrated system with the English NHS, we would have run out of critical PPE equipment in the first weeks and months of the the first wave of the pandemic. We would have done. There was what was called a system of mutual aid. They had it, we needed it, they gave it to us. As the pandemic went on, we were a lot smarter than they were uh, at having a joined-up system, and we haven't seen the scandalous outrages we've seen in England of people uh, scamming the system and, and buying PPE for outrageously inflated prices because we had a planned system we had an NHS with a shared services function that bought and procured and had governance and had checks and a robustness to it that enabled us to get PPE at the time in England We were absolutely desperate and we bailed them out on multiple occasions as we should as they bailed us out we bailed them out we bailed out Scotland we bailed out Northern Ireland Northern Ireland helped us Scotland helped us We were in it together and we helped each other. Now, are there tensions, are there imperfections around that? Yeah, of course there are. We argued about the money and we argued about this and we argued about that. But it was all within the framework of cooperation and we figured it out and we helped each other out and we were better for it. That's not romantic, that's hard headed, it's just good for us all. Uh, And I think those arguments for the union stand. You know, we should not confuse the union with the English government and with and with and with, and with the Tories in Westminster. We're going to get rid of them. Is the UK perfect? Christ no. Is Wales treated as the rent of the litter? Too often, yes. And that's as much cultural as I discussed earlier, but the forces in the way, the class system and the English media and, and all the rest of it. So we should rail and rage against that and fight to reform. And the people we sent to Westminster should bang that drum and not turn native as some of them tend to do uh, so there's much we need to do to reform and shake up the way the uk works but i think if we if we bailed out of it uh, we would soon find ourselves trying to recreate something which did some of the functions it currently does and we'd end up creating a whole set of other problems
0: so we had the the great conservative unionist on the pod a few weeks ago that as you mentioned earlier david mounding when we asked him about this he didn't seem to have much faith that the westminster government will be capable of of saving the union i don't think that situation has been helped by boris johnson calling devolution a disaster do you think that the longer the tories are in power in westminster the more damage is done to the union and the harder it becomes to to reel that back and to to save it
1: i think you know there's no doubt there's, the union is under a huge threat. There's no doubt about it. Sc- Scotland is the, you know, is the short-term threat, but you know, it, it has the seed of its own destruction laid within it in, in many ways because of the deep inequalities that there are and because of the, just the cultural arrogance, really, of those who are in power. And I think you know, that, that's not, that's not going to get automatically better if there's a Labour government in Westminster either. You know? I just think we've just got to be honest about that. Wales is small from a London point of view, Wales is marginal. Uh, and that's just an, you know, an economic fact and a cultural fact. Devolution has been a stealth-led project. 30 years ago, it was a fanciful notion we would have a Welsh parliament with law-raising and tax-raising powers. But we have been able to create a new reality of what the UK looks like. You know, it's, a, it's a very different UK than it was when I was born. So it can be changed. There's nothing inevitable about this. Yes, we're going against the grain. Yes, it's difficult. But we've we've got to where we've got to. So we can go further. You know, I think a federal system, which is, again, the norm across Europe. So, you know, you can remake countries. You can remake constitutions. You can reshape perceptions and attitudes. And I think we can do that too. It's It's not easy, and we are certainly pushing water uphill on it. But if you'd have said, you know, when I was a college student campaigning for the first referendum, we'd be where we are now, then it would have been a stretch to see it. From tiny acorns, mighty oaks grow. Hugh T. Edwards, the North Wales Trade Unionist, said in the 50s, in the first Parliament for Wales campaign, uh, was being uh, petitioned and marched for. Uh, and that was 70 years ago. I like the Gramsci quote, the pessimism of the intellect, the optimism of the will. You'd have to say, by any intellectual analysis of this, things aren't looking great. But I absolutely think that can be changed.
0: So we've heard in Labour, a lot of people like yourself, like Heaven David, talk about federalism. Carwin Jones talked at length about his version of confederalism. What turns that talk into reality? How do we get from where we are now to a federal or a confederal UK that is satisfactory for the the majority?
1: Well, I think Kirk Starmer adopting federalism as official Labour policy is a very promising sign. Because I think, you know, sober-minded people on the right side... Of the argument in London can see there is a massive threat to the union and there is a rational way out of it you know and also there's a self-interested argument for Keir Starmer too because without being able to win back support in London he doesn't get to become prime minister so that confluence of pragmatism and uh, a sober analysis of the best prospects of keeping the UK together offers a way ahead. I think the trouble with Boris Johnson and his ilk is that they, you know, they are English nationalists who uh, like the the jingoism uh, that got them Brexit. They don't think one move ahead. They're simply getting caught up in their own rhetoric. And that is, you know, I think Laura McAllister is right. It's not nationalists that form the biggest danger to the UK. It is so-called unionists. So I think there is a, there's a very real threat, but I think uh, you know, they have woken up, I think, to the danger of Scotland. I suspect they'll draw their own conclusions and go about it ham-fisted way. So it may be that we, that, that Scotland does vote to leave. It doesn't need to. I think it can be salvaged. But if Boris Johnson carries on as it is, that could happen. Uh, but I think in that peril, more sober minds can prevail.
0: Lee Waters, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please don't hesitate to find us on Medium at herewithblogcymru.com on Facebook at HiraithBlog and on Twitter at HiraithBlog. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.